Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Kevin Vost, the author of more than 20 books. Today we discuss The Porch and the Cross and his new book, Memorize the Stoics. Kevin is a clinical psychologist, professor, and speaker. His work covers a wide array of topics from ancient philosophy, theology, and even strength training. In the conversation, Kevin and I discuss searching for wisdom, the Stoic view of God, philosophy and forgiveness, navigating negative emotions, how to memorize ancient lessons, wisdom in daily life, and much more. So please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Kevin Vost. Well, Kevin, welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Joshua. Well, it's a pleasure on this end. Time flies. It's It's been about a year since we chatted about your book, How to Think Like Aquinas. And today I'm excited to chat about a couple books that you've written on Stoicism, one being The Porch and the Cross, which has been out for a few years but you also have a new book, Memorize the Stoics, which we'll, we'll touch on as well. So I'm excited for it. As a, as a first question, I'm curious to ask how you first got into philosophy. Yeah, that, that's a good question, and I, I know the answer to that. Uh, when I was young, I was totally obsessed with the worlds of weightlifting and bodybuilding. <laughs> that's all I really cared about. Uh, by the time I was in my teens, I waited till Joe Eater's Muscle Builder. I couldn't wait till it came in the mailbox so I'd go to the gym and work out with my buddies on all the latest routines. Well, it happened in the late 70s. There was this top-notch bodybuilder named Mike Menser on the scene. And at the time, he was expected to be like the, like the heir apparent to Arnold Schwarzenegger to take over where he left off. And, and it didn't uh, quite happen that way, but Menser did become a Mr. Universe, the first guy to get the perfect score. And I was really, really impressed uh, with what I learned from him about training and nutrition. He kind of went against the norms of the time, said you don't have to spend all day in the gym. You can do these brief, efficient workouts. And he was saying the same with your nutrition. You don't have to overload your body. Just you know, eat good, healthy foods, adequate protein, and so on. But anyway, Menser also dabbled in philosophy himself. So through these muscle magazines, I'm hearing him talk about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and Bertrand Russell and later uh, Ayn Rand. So this really kind of captured uh, my attention. So at that point, I started reading uh, some of those philosophers myself. And I will say then, by the time I went to college, I thought, I want to be a philosopher. But, but the schools in our town didn't have a philosophy major or even a minor. And I was a homebody. So I thought, well, what's the next best thing? Oh, maybe psychology. There's a lot of overlap there. So that's what I did. I went out and got a bachelor's, a master's, and doctorate degree uh, in psychology. But I will say, I found even there, it was through uh, courses in psychology where I was studying the modern rationally motive behavior therapists and the cognitive therapists, studying their works, people like Albert Ellis, a psychologist, and Aaron Beck, a psychiatrist. They both said the kernel, the gist of their method, comes from these ancient Stoics, from this guy named Epictetus. He said, 
People are disturbed not by things, but by the views they take of things or the judgments they make about things. And they kind of built these whole therapies upon this idea that, that we can control our own emotions and behaviors much more than we might realize uh, if we train ourselves to, to you know, seek the truth in every situation and, and learn how to calm our emotions by, by using right reason and so on. So at that point, uh, yeah, I was really became really uh, enamored with the Stoics as the years went by. I, I also came to really enjoy particularly uh, Aristotle, uh, his approach like, to ethics, like the Nicomachean ethics and, and other works. When I was younger, I was a, a fan of Ayn Rand, and she said that her, her objectivism basically grew out of Aristotelianism. And Ellis, you know, of course, had that emphasis back on the Stoics. So I enjoyed reading both the Stoics themselves and Aristotle himself. Later in life, I also, uh, I'd been a Catholic. I was away. I came back to the Catholic Church and started really getting immersed in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a theologian and a philosopher. And here's a guy, he really masterfully integrated many of the insights of the Stoics with those of Aristotle. So, so those have been my main philosophic influences, the Stoics, Aristotle, and uh, Thomas Aquinas. I'm really curious. It's it's such an an interesting thing, as you mentioned right there, integration, Thomas Aquinas. But it sounds like you know you're you're a trained clinical psychologist by by training. You have this interest in in philosophy, theology. How does that integration now, as you look back and maybe how you see the world and live today? How do you think that that integration? is useful and how does it come into play in daily life? Yeah, well, well, for me, you know, it, it even ties into my old focus on weightlifting and bodybuilding, you know, not just that we should all try to achieve showy, blumpy biceps, you know, but, but proper care for the body. And that's another aspect of this integration that the, the Stoics talk about this and they go back to the old, you know, the Latin, uh, the Roman idea of the healthy mind and a healthy body. Stoics talk about that. Uh, Aquinas does too. Uh, Aristotle says that virtues are to the soul as health and fitness and beauty are to the body. So I'm seeing the way all this comes together. If we want to be practically wise, you know, if we want to be, uh, well, you know, the old saying healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now the Stoics would say that wealthy is, is totally optional. It's not the main thing you should be striving for. But to be healthy and wise kind of goes together. You know, we take care of our bodies. That's going to help our, our, our actual brains inside our heads, part of the body, but also help our mental outlook. So I just saw that this all makes sense if we really try to improve ourselves both in body and soul. And some of these great writers, I mean, they, you know, human beings basically the same as we were for, you know, 2,000 years ago. So they have all kinds of insights that can help us out today. And even in the course of that, I tend to have been drawn the most by people who were great integrators. You know, like if you read Aristotle, before he gives you his opinion on many topics, he's going to give you kind of a background. Okay, this is what Anaxaragus said. You know, this is what so-and-so said. And, and Thomas Aquinas does it all the time. I mean, he, he cites Aristotle thousands of times, St. Augustine, he cites hundreds of people. He cites Muslims, he cites Jewish thinkers, you know. Just amazing integration. And within the realm of the Stoics themselves, to me, one of the great integrators was, was Seneca. Because he has great Stoic lessons, he called himself a Stoic, but he also freely borrowed from the Epi Epicureans or others when he thought they had insights that, that made sense. So that's one thing. When, you know, there's many people I really admire in the intellectual world throughout history. But one thing I like in particular is those people who will kind of go after truth regardless of where it might be. Even if it might be in what uh, Seneca called the enemy camp, you know, 
speaking of other schools of philosophy, kind of tongue-in-cheek. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I do think there is a true integration there, and I've always admired the thinkers that seem to be most aware of that and tried to put everything together. I love that. It, it's interesting, in, in obviously we've been searching for, for wisdom for a little over a year on this, on this podcast. It's interesting when you think of whoever it may be, whether Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas, many people saying the same things and make collecting wisdom, if you will, but potentially saying it a little bit different. And it connects with people in different ways. It, it being said one way connects with a certain group of people and, and said another way. So it's interesting. When you think of Thomas Aquinas, I guess let me throw two questions at you here. I, I mm -hmm. apologize for stacking them. You think of you, you, you came to Thomas Aquinas, this big summa, you know, maybe waist high of books. Where, where did you start? And then also, is there anything that written by Thomas Aquinas that really spoke to you? Yes. <laughs> and uh, to those, I'll give kind of three, uh, three answers there. Yeah, his Summa Theologica is like, uh, if you include this supplemental material, uh, uh, 1.8 million words, three to 4,000 pages. And although I was raised a Catholic, and he was a great Catholic teacher, I never really read him firsthand until uh, my early 40s. In a, a series of events, I was studying a course on natural law that talked about the Stoics and Aristotle, then also brought in St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, so it really piqued my interest. But, but the first part, I think, the first part that I dug into in his great Summa is actually what he calls his second part. Just in brief, the first part of the Summa Theologica focuses on the nature of God and then creation that kind of flows out from him. The second part of his massive Summa focuses on man or the human being. What is a human being? What makes us happy? What are virtues? How do we perfect our powers? You know, what are our duties to other people? So just really, really goes on and on in this about human nature in the second part. In the third part, he focuses on Jesus Christ and, and how Jesus brings us back, back to God, like in a great circle. Creation comes out from God, we're human beings. Jesus comes to earth to bring us back. So just, just the general layout. But two things really hit me at first. Uh, one, I remember I read a book from the philosopher Mortimer Adler. And it was called The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. And he was talking about the profound difference between the human being and every other species on Earth in terms of our conceptual, abstract reasoning, faculties, and this and that. And so some of his references led me to that second part of the Summa Theologica, where Thomas is talking about the nature of human beings. And when I read him, you know, with my background as a psychologist, I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> Aquinas is a better psychologist than just about anybody I've read. You know, he seemed to, because he integrated so much wisdom of the past, it's not just like Thomas thought this about his own head, right? But because he was that great respecter of past wisdom and integrator and a person who's going to pass it on, that, so that really wowed me. And even just a, a fine point there that we may get into a little bit later, even in a tiny little part of that second part, is one page, he has a little article called whether, uh, whether Memory is a Part of Prudence, the Virtue of Practical Wisdom or Prudence. It's the second part of the second part, the 49th question, the first article. And that's where he even talks about uh, these specialized memory techniques, which happened to me my area of specialization in psychology. So some of my books flowed uh, out of that. So even in my minute little specialty area, Thomas had something very valuable to say. He's considered one of the key figures in these methods, 
But the last, the last point I'll go back to is, but also just on my own personal spiritual journey, I was raised believing in God. I, I read people like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and Ayn Rand and Bertram Russell and others. I consider myself an atheist for about 25 years just because I didn't believe belief in God was reasonable. When mm. I read Aquinas again, it, it changed my mind. Uh, I, I was impressed. You know, he has this famous five proofs for the existence of God, but it wasn't even so much of that. It's in his first part where he talks about what he calls the attributes of God. What does it mean to say that God is simple and not complex? What does it mean to say that God is eternal, lives in the eternal now? Things like that. That's what really wowed me the most and changed my, my theological thinking. So, so Aquinas got me on multiple levels when I first read him. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Kevin. It's great to get a, a bit of background there. And maybe that's a great transition into the book, The Porch and the Cross, could you speak a bit of, of how the Stoics thought about God, how we could maybe describe that today? Yeah, and that is a great question because, you know, the, the interest in Stoicism is really growing today. There's several different organizations, modern uh, Stoicism and, and others that are out there gathering people who are very, very drawn to their ideas. And from my observations, you know, the people who come in there hold all kinds of religious and non-religious beliefs. You know, there are Catholics there, there's Protestants there, there's Jewish people, there's Muslims, there's Hindus, there's, you know, just secular people who are agnostic and, and uh, atheists. But there's this common interest there draws them to the Stoics. And the Stoics themselves, and, you know, like three or four of the main ones we talk about are Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Musonius Rufus. Those are the ones we have the biggest sections of their actual writings. Uh, and there's plenty of other Stoics, too. And there was, you know, some kind of different conceptions of, of what it means to talk about God. You know, they didn't use Revelation. They Most of them lived before Christ. They didn't have a holy book like the Bible. So they're just guiding, going by their reason. Uh, and the some, some of them did speak of God, but almost more in a pantheistic way, that like God is nature or God is the universe, or he's something outside of it that, that guides it and controls it. He may not necessarily have created it, but, but he's this, this guiding force. Sometimes they will talk about God in terms of providence, and also, sometimes they even use Zeus as a synonym for God. You know, the, the Greek uh, king of the gods, Zeus, the name is actually similar to our Dios for, for just God in general. So I would just say, different Stoics have different conceptions of God. Some of them do talk about God in, in such personal ways that it really sounds Christian. You know, like if you read Epictetus, he has one line where he says, you know, if I were a nightingale, I'd sing him to gods like a nightingale. If I was a swan, I'd do it like a swan. Well, as it is, I'm a rational human being. So I'm going to sing hymns to God like a rational human. Why don't you join me in my song? You know, he says stuff like that. Seneca at times says, you know, there's a Holy Spirit that dwells within us. So there, there are many times in the Stoic sayings where you will find things that, boy, that really sounds like a personal God and almost sounds like Christianity. And there are other statements where they talk about gods in plural. They just talk about nature or the universe. And, and, and it gets more complicated. They didn't have a clear uh, distinction of, between soul and matter the way, the way that uh, many of us uh, Christians would have today. But, uh, but anyway, there, there's all kinds of different views about God. But, or, or gods in the plural, depending on who you're reading. But, but for, for many of them, one of their main principles or mottos is to follow nature and or to follow God, to try to, to live a life according to the nature of the universe around you and the nature of you as a human being, which some of them said is made in the image of likeness of God, like Epictetus' teacher Musonius Rufus said that. 
What led you to write a book on on Stoicism and Christianity? Yeah, well, again, you know, I had this interest in the Stoics since my late teens when I discovered them in the psychology courses because they really had a profound personal impact on me. Like, I was the world's you know, shyest public speaker. I'd turn beet red, I'd stutter, I would dread speaking. And I learned lessons from the Stoic that helped me overcome that. You know, I'm not going to get so worried about that. I can't control if my skin turns red or not. I can't control if people like what I'm going to say or not. I can just do my part to try to say the best things I can say, right? So, so from that personal interest, I knew from my, well, early 20s that the Stoics had some good stuff there that can help everybody. They can also help you just stay calm, less likely to lash out at people and get angry, not to be worried, not to be overly depressed. So they had all these wonderful ethical and psychological uh, value. Now, why particularly the portrait of the cross, too? Again, uh, you know, I was raised as a Christian. Uh, I was away for about 25 years in my late 40s or early 40s. I came back to, as a Catholic Christian. And partly because of my specialization in those memory techniques, I thought, wouldn't it be kind of fun to write a book for Christian audience about what St. Thomas Aquinas had to say about these memory techniques? And like, let's use them for stuff like how to memorize the Ten Commandments in the books of the Bible and, and things like that. Because um, I, I'd read in other books that give the history of these memory techniques. They say, for some reason, it seems like modern writers, modern Catholic writers, kind of ignore this and never do anything with it. So I did. I came out with the, the book Memorize the Faith was the first book I did for Catholic publishers. Then after that time, it branched into like, well, I'm almost I'm about two dozen books now. So they've all been for various Catholic publishers, you know, so that's that's my uh, readership. And I'm kind of specialized in tying in different thought system to Christian and Catholic true, truths and what's in the Bible and so on. So it's just kind of a natural niche. And I thought, boy, um, I think Christian readers, you know, there's been some works exploring the Stoics uh, and Christianity. It's not like I did the first one. But I thought there would really be a real need for uh, a book that shows just how practical those lessons of the Stoics are. And if you're a Christian, I said, you know, Christ said, you know, well, what's the greatest commandments? Well, you're supposed to love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And I say, well, it's hard to do that if you're always getting angry or if you're depressed, you know, or if you're anxious. And the Stoics can give us kind of techniques and skills and mechanisms to better kind of allow us to live out those great commandments. So that was part of my idea there. I wanted to show, um, you know, modern Christian readers, and it's not just for Christians because it's the Stoics, their own lessons are there. So it should have something to say to to any reader. But I wanted to do a book that would kind of introduce and summarize Stoic readings, give some commentary on them from a Christian perspective, and then also show historically throughout time how four of the main Stoics, Musonius, Rufus, Epictetus, Seneca, and the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, show how they had been uh, evaluated and accepted by different Christian and other important historical figures throughout time. It's really fascinating, and I'm I am uh, have been curious about this this topic for for a while. When you think of, of some of these Christian principles or, or practices of, of love, forgiveness, and, and judgment, and, and all sorts of stuff, it, it seems like a a very good fit together to to learn how to how to be a more forgiving person, or, or really, I guess whatever sort of philosophy of life or the path that, that you choose to live, it, it seems that these practices can only help. I wanted to ask of of some of these perspectives, like views and views and beliefs of the world, 
mm-hmm. if we think of a philosophy of life, like how the world works, maybe principles or virtues that we follow and, and practices. When it comes to views of the world, the Stoics, at least in my view, talk about this interconnectedness. Marcus Aurelius talks about a lot what's good for the for the bees, good for the hive, maybe impermanence. Everything is always, always changing. And you could go on, but maybe another one is, is the idea of, uh, of virtue and vice, like good and, and evil, tied to maybe uh, wisdom, which Thomas Aquinas also talks about. But I, I'm curious, as, as someone following uh, Christianity as a philosophy of life, following this particular path, it can be difficult to to have a distilled down perspectives of, of how the world works. As we mentioned, Thomas Aquinas, you know, it's, it's about waist high uh, of that. Are there any of these views and beliefs that I've went through that are maybe counter to Christianity? Any concerns there about some of the perspectives they, they hold? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, when you when you read through particular Stoics, I mean, you you need to know you are going to come across some verses that that most Christians are not going to accept, though some would. Uh, and I think to me, one of the most interesting ones, because in a way it's paradoxical that they would say this, that some of the Stoics uh, endorse uh, suicide in the right under the right circumstances. Uh, Seneca particularly talks about, well, the door is always open. Don't complain about things. The door is always open. You know, and someone would say, if you get to the point in your life where, where you're chronically disabled or you, you can't get any joy or pleasure, you're in constant pain, you know, they would talk about the value of suicide there, where at least, you know, in the Catholic faith and other Christian views would, would say not, you know, kind of, you know, advise you to bear and forbear and get some value out of that suffering. You don't know uh, how you might help another person by staying on there. And to me, it's a little bit paradoxical. For most things, though, the Stoics are saying that you can endure almost anything depending on your the attitude that you take uh, toward it. So I'd say there, I don't, I don't agree with that, but, but they're not doing it in a crass way. They're not actually recommending that people, you know, take like this idea, well, things are going bad, just kill yourself. Not at all. Uh, you know, Epictetus didn't do that. Marcus Aurelius didn't do that. And Zonius Rufus didn't do that. Uh, Seneca actually did kill himself, but at the order of Nero, who was going to be sending soldiers to kill him. So Seneca just, just uh, you know, did it to save that a, a torturous... Uh, death. And also, Seneca talks about it in some extreme ways, too. Like, one example I always think of, he talks about, like, some young young guy that they would have called a barbarian who's captured in war. Now he's going to be made a slave. He's going to go made, uh, be made to fight in the gladiatorial arena, like in the Colosseum. And he tells a story where this young man, he's being taken on a cart to get there to the Colosseum. So at one point, he cranes his head over and puts his head between the spokes of the cart, so it snaps his neck and kills him, mm. you know, as a way of avoiding that degrading uh, performance in in the Colosseum. So so it's, it's some nuanced stuff. Uh, you, you see some other views at times in the Stoics. Uh, let's see, like, like you know, they'll have different different perspectives on, on on what God is. You know, depending on which Stoic you're reading, that you the Christian may or may not agree with. So I'm not saying you need to take everything hook, line, and sinker. You need to be careful when you go through the Stoics, depending on what your own your own you know background is. See what makes sense to you. And what doesn't? But I would say, gosh, over you know, ninety-five percent or more is probably good stuff. That, that most modern Christians say, hey, that's you know that, that's some pretty good stuff there. And and in Portion of the Cross, I talk a lot about like what 
early Christian theologians thought about the Stoics, some particular, the personalities and, and their writings. There's a lot of positive uh, thoughts there. It's not my specialty area, but other people have even written books about, like Paul and the Stoics. Uh, St. Paul, you know, who wrote multiple letters and books of the Bible, and how he seemed to be well-versed in Stoic principles, and some of his, his concepts seemed to very mesh very well with them. In fact, in the early centuries, there were these letters between Seneca and St. Paul back and forth, which were later found to be spurious. spurious. They don't think they were real, but those existed out there because they mm. saw such an affinity. And when you read Seneca, too, um, you're going to find so many ideas that resonate to our, our, our modern views that don't seem like they're written 2,000 years ago. You know, like at a time when slavery is virtually unquestioned around the world. You know, you capture somebody in battle, boom, they're your slaves. Your, their children, their wives are your slaves. You know, Seneca was saying, you know, throw away genealogies. He said, if you go back in time, every slave has a king back there somewhere in their background, and every king has a slave somewhere in their background. He said, what you really need to do is, is it kind of sounds like Martin Luther King Jr., treat people by the content of their characters. So Seneca would say, well, sometimes I'll invite my slaves to have dinner with me, if they seem to be worth it, if they're noble people. And he said, even if they're not, I'll invite them if it seems like they're on the way. I might inspire them to be that. So you're going to find a lot of noble stuff in there. Seneca, like Aurelius, you know, they were no fans of the gladiatorial combats of what went on in the Colosseum. So just, just very humane insights and all over the place in the Stoics that should resonate, you know, with modern Christian readers. Let me ask you about um, this idea of, of pantheism that you, that you mentioned earlier. It seems like when I read some of the the saints and and mystics from the from the past which i haven't done recently but it seems like a similarity it seems like many of uh of the catholic saints seem to be have a similar pantheistic type of view i'll also think of um a modern author i like of uh a richard rohr universal christ and he talks about panentheism or god in all things um it, do you see a similarity there well i definitely do see overlap there for sure well you know even thomas aquinas himself says god is present in everything by his essence presence and power the idea that god holds everything in the universe in it sustains it in its existence part of his proofs show this they're not just don't just prove the God creator thing, but it couldn't even keep going without God. So there, there is that concept that, but the distinction would be that, that, that uh, at least Catholic Christians would say that God, everything comes from God, and the fact that it exists somewhere shows his influence, his power. So in a sense, God is there. But in that view, though, but, but God himself is not the universe itself. He is its creator and sustainer. Whereas some pantheistic views may make no distinction that God, in a sense, is in everything, he's in me, and he's you, but there's no, you know, capital G God that, that's outside of this system or that created it. But I, but I do think, though, that, that the Stoics do have a, a beautiful way of looking at it that should not really conflict with the Christian way of looking at the world. Like, um, for example, the, what's sometimes elaborated, the Holy Spirit's gift of knowledge. It says it opens us up to be able to better read two books. One is the book of Revelation, you know, the, the Bible. The other is the book of nature. So ideally, if we're influenced by the Holy Spirit, everything out there in the natural world is going to lead us back to God. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said, you know, the, the beauty in everything, the beauty in a mountaintop or, or a, a galaxy or a little puppy or a little baby, all of that in some small way reflects the majesty that's all there in God himself who, who gave us all of these things. 
So, you know, so if you're going to take that, that view that if you read the Stoics and you get a greater appreciation just for the, the beauty, the cosmic interconnectedness of, of everything you see in the world around you, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And I, I thought another important point that you raised a couple times in the book is this idea of faith and reason. I recently came across um, Pope John Paul II talking about um, faith and reason as two wings of a bird. It it, it seems like that connects with, for the Stoics, there's obviously a lot about reason, but how do you, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. You know, in 1998, uh, Pope John Paul II wrote his Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason Encyclical, which is a beautiful piece. I've used that metaphor myself Mm -hmm. in in multiple books, how faith and reason are the two wings with which we fly to truth. And I think part of these answering it is today, there are many people who see them as polar opposites. Reason and faith, or now it's often science and religion, two different things, you know. Don't see the way that they can be integrated. But John Paul's point was making is that if you believe in the faith, what's been revealed to us from God, it's not going to contradict what your rational, logical mind shows you. It's not going to contradict empirical evidence logical reasoning, but it's going to take you to things we can't necessarily know on your own, special revelations like that Jesus Christ was God and the existence of the Trinity, things like that. So so the Stoics, yeah, they really wouldn't speak in terms of faith. I don't, I don't know that they use that term in the way that we do. They're, they're mainly going by reason, but they're saying that their, their reason leads them to this sense that, yeah, there's something big beyond us. We're just a part. We're just a part of something broader. So in that way, I think it's it's very consonant. And, and Thomas Aquinas, now the Stoics, the major ones were writing, you know, like, well, Marcus Rios was the last major Stoic, and he died in 180 AD. So there are several centuries before that. Thomas Aquinas is alive in the 1200s, you know, over a thousand years after the Stoics. But he's one of those people who explicitly said, yeah, faith and reason should go together. There's only one truth, the truths of reason should never contradict the truths of faith. Uh, so so I, I'm really a fan of those ideas. And when I read the Stoics, I, I kind of get a subtle sense that, that they might agree if they would have seen it uh, described that way. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, uh, of forgiveness these these days, of, of how you practice forgiveness. And I, um, I often think of the, the parable of the prodigal son in this stoic lens of this this father is and i wrote a a blog post a while back but it it seems like this father is playing those the the stoic virtues of of, you know what's what's within his control what's what's not within his control Mm -hmm. and obviously as a parent i i think about that that challenge of of what's up to us and what's not up to us but but how do you think of of some of these stoic practices and ideas of, of helping us model things like love and forgiveness. Oh yeah, I think they're full of it because you know sometimes you might see misrepresentations of the Stoics as being they're all focused on well like you know they're they're like Spock in Star Trek right they're just these people concerned with logic and reason they're not going to care about relating to other people you know but if you actually read them yeah they're very very closely concerned with our relationships to other people the roles that we play as a father you know as a son as a grandparent or you know and as a citizen you know as a member of uh, organizations or, or businesses whatever I mean they're very much into that interconnectedness. And specifically, I love what he said about the prodigal son 
uh, parable because I hadn't thought about that specifically in Stoic Lenses myself, but it's really full of Stoic insights. I'll have to read your your, your blog. And, and one Stoic, I think, who really particularly reads a rings out loud and clear about that forgiveness stuff to me, maybe because he actually had a bunch of children, it was Marcus Aurelius. So, you know, remember Marcus, I think it's 169 to 180 AD. He's the most powerful man on earth. He is the Roman emperor, the Augustus, the, the leader of the greatest empire in civilization. And when you read his meditations, which were kind of, you know, notes written to himself while he's on these distant battlefields, not, not trying to expand the empire, but just trying to protect what was already there, he's writing these notes to himself most powerful man in the world, he's, he's constantly preaching to himself, like, you know, bear with others, be forgiving. You're in a training session and somebody scratches you, don't get mad at them, even though I'm the mightiest man in the world and this, this private, you know, here has, has injured me. He, he, he's full of that. He's having, he's also constantly like saying like, okay, here, you know, he doesn't say here I am the emperor, but, but here he is the emperor. And he's thinking, well, think back to previous emperors, think back to the times of Augustus or, or uh, Vespasian or Trajan. He said, boy, you know, they're all gone, and, and, and at least for the first two, every single person who was alive during their reign, they're all gone too. He said, before I know it, you know, I'm going to be gone, and every single person who knew me is going to be gone. And then you get kind of thinking like, isn't it kind of silly to, to bear grudges, to not forgive people, when both you and them in a few short years, poof, you know, you're not going to be here on this earth anymore. So, so, yeah, I think there are wonderful lessons there in the Stoics, particularly Marcus Aurelius, to be forgiving. And he talks about this again and again. You know, he says that we were made for each other. You know, he says like the, the eyelids or the two feet, you know, or the upper and lower jaws. We're all made to cooperate uh, together. So he has many beautiful lessons on bearing with others and, and forgiving them. Really good stuff in Aurelius. Even like one of his favorite little exercises, you just say to yourself every morning, you know, today I'm going to meet the the uh, you know the boisterous the treacherous the ornery the unneighborly the envious and so on, but remember you know we're made here for each other and, and whatever they're doing that annoys you in some way that makes sense to them so we don't need to lash out at them but anyway with your theme of forgiveness I think that is very strongly seen in the Stoics uh, especially Aurelius Epictetus's common twist there is how to bear up to insults how how not to get angry, how not to lash out to people, how almost to forgive them instantly uh, when you're insulted. And then finally, you know, to tie this thing back like you did to the, the prodigal son there, yeah, you can think of this, this father, I mean, this son is what, squandered through everything, come maybe defame the father's name, you know, become this <laughs> dredge of the earth when the father's this respectable man. And then he comes back after he squandered, hey, dad, here I am. And, and dad says, you know, welcome, come back, come back, my son, you know. Uh, always holding hope out there that people can change as well. So anyway, uh, excellent question. Yeah, I think forgiveness is a theme. If, if you're into that, you'll find a lot to, to ponder with the Stoics. I love it. It's really interesting. And even the older brother offers this anti-Stoic approach of anger, yes, which yes. stems from his his judgment of of the of the younger brother. So maybe that's a a spot to talk about how the how the stoics work with some of these negative emotions or uh, avoiding the negative emotions if you will yeah sure you know in that that one phrase that i said that the cognitive therapist took from Epictetus is from his fifth chapter of his handbook it basically goes people are disturbed not by things but by the views or the judgments they make about things now if you think back like in the history of 20th century psychiatry and psychology 
we had uh, you know the Freudian psychoanalytic theories. If you're if you're upset, disturbed as an adult, it's because something bad happened when you were a kid. We had the behavior of psychology, stimulus and response, or B.F. Skinner's operant conditioning as rewards and punishment. So things from the outside or from the past determine what you are. Uh, so it's almost like uh, you are disturbed by things. It was the common view of the psychoanalysts and the behaviors. And here's Epictetus saying, no, you're not disturbed by things. You're disturbed by your, by your judgments there. So, so with the Stoics, we, have, we can bring in this whole element of control. We can kind of train ourselves to do two things. Uh, one thing Epictetus says is um, always test your impressions. When you see something happen, you know, evaluate what really happened here. In one example I'll borrow from, from Albert Ellis, the psychologist. He says, imagine you're on a crowded bus in a big city. Some huge guy comes by, smashes your toast, you know, steps squarely on it, walks on by without saying a word. You know, a lot of us would, would be hurt and we'd be angry, right? He steps on toe, stimulus, we're mad, response. But then Ellis says, what if he walks on by, you see he's got these real dark glasses and a white cane. You know, oh, wait a minute. Uh, okay, he's blind. He didn't mean to do that. And hopefully we're not going to be angry at him. Now our toe's still going to hurt. But we might be, oh, I'm glad this man has the courage to get out, go places. Would I be able to do that if I couldn't see? So that's one thing. The view is try to make sure your judgment really reflects the situation before you jump to conclusions and upset yourself or lash out at others. That also, though, they say that even if another person has tried to harm you, even if that guy wasn't blind, he's just a huge boisterous, aggressive man that gets a kick out of making people hurt. Even in that case, you can say, well, my toe's still going to hurt, but do I have to get mad at him? Do I have to let him just ruin the rest of my day? Do I have to go into work and tell everybody I met what this idiot did to me, you know? Or can I say, boy, I feel sorry for him. If, if, if he's a grown man, that's what, where he gets his kicks. Yeah, my toe hurts, but, but it'll start stop hurting, and I'm not going to let it ruin my day, you know? So Stoics are big on that kind of thing, too. Make sure the situation has been accurately judged, because we often judge to false conclusions. And even if a bad thing happens, even if someone does intend to injure or insult us, realize that we have a lot of power uh, to, to rein ourselves in, to make it far less devastating than it would be otherwise. It's such an important lesson, and it seems like it shows up in many other parables. I think of uh, the Buddha and this idea of the second arrow, you know, this unnecessary suffering. So it's the the first arrow is the insult, and then the second arrow being the story that we and the meaning yes. that we that we make behind it. Even even Chuang Tzu has uh, some parable about the empty empty boat. If we're in an empty boat and it rams into us and there's somebody in it, we're all upset. But if there's nobody in it, there's no anger at all. You know, it's, it's just this weird thing of uh, these negative emotions, which often arise from our interactions with, with other people. You were describing Marcus Aurelius, how he was making sense in meditations of, you know, the people that he's going to interact with and all sorts of this stuff. And it seems like in meditations, Marcus Aurelius... He makes sense of it coming back to his perspective, whether it be we're all interconnected, we're in this one thing, or or impermanence, it's constantly changing, or an idea of when people know better, they do better. But yeah. that that doesn't seem from a and you're you know you're an expert on on Thomas Aquinas and and many different different things. Is there some of that in Christianity? where it's this this focus on the perspective of, of coming back to that to make sense? Because it seems like forgiveness 
sorry for the ramble here, but forgiveness in, in some of these things, love, anything, unbelievably difficult. I, I, I don't necessarily hear as much of how Marcus Aurelius is making sense of that. He's coming back to reason, to make sense, to, to act in, in accordance with virtue. Yeah, and you know, one thing too, you know, I read the stories like, wow, all, all these lessons here, you know, for me that I didn't know about. And then sometimes when I go back and read scripture, I say, oh, there, there's an idea that's very much like, like what the Stoics were saying. They might not have elaborated in step by step, but boom, you know, there it is in a, in a pithy statement. There's a lot of that. So there's this great, this great uh, intermeshing there. You know, I think too that the, these great Stoics, an interesting fact is that none of them seem to really have a great familiarity with Christianity. You know, Marcus is dying in 180 AD. The, uh, the, the, you know, the, the books of the New Testament haven't been formally cataloged and put together and they haven't been out there yet. There's just a few times in some of their writings where they talk about interactions with the Christians or uh, Seneca. Some of them seem to, or I think it's Epictetus, seem to confuse the Christians at times with the Jewish people not understanding the difference there. So you have to wonder uh, if these great Stoics had had access to to the books, especially the books of the New Testament, what what they would have made of that, the great, great insights there. But I say, yeah. Uh, so so the our Christian reading is full of it, the full of these wonderful insights that sometimes it might even be brought out more clearly if if you've read some of these Stoics, you're going to reread some of the letters of Paul and go, wow, I see how that matches with what Marcus was talking about or what Seneca was talking about. So I just find you know a, a great deal of of very complementary ideas in the Stoics and in our Christian uh, scripture. Is there anything from Thomas Aquinas specifically that comes up? Because his writing style, and maybe you could speak to how his writing might differ from a, you know, a traditional narrative, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. Yeah, yeah. Now, Thomas, you know, he's living in 1225 to 1274, you know, the Middle Ages, the medieval period, and he's what they call the scholastic philosophers. For the first time, we're getting great universities in Europe. He worked a lot of time at the University of Paris, which is a premier university in the world. There were others at uh, Bologna and a few other cities that might have specialized in different things. Like I think like one might be liberal arts, another might focus more on law. Paris was like the ultimate center of learning there for theology and, and philosophy and for, and for other uh, studies also. But when you read something like Thomas's Summa Theologica, it's going to be strange. He was writing in this specific method that they used, the question and answer method. So, for example, Thomas talks about multiple thousands of issues in the Summa. There's thousands of what they call questions. And then within these questions, there's like sub-questions, little smaller parts, and there might be three or four or five or six or eight or ten or twelve under each question. But within each article, like I said, that one is called uh, Whether Memory is a Part of Prudence. He asks that question, and then he usually starts with what he calls objections. These are like people who would, would disagree with the conclusion he's going to come to. And then, like, for example, for there, people would say, is memory part of prudence? They would say, no, memory's not a part of prudence, because prudence or practical wisdom is a matter of the intellect, but the memory is something of the sensitive souls, like animals have memory, you know. Or they'd say, no, because prudence is a, it's a practical wisdom. It's a virtue that we build through practice, but we just have memory. It's not something that you build for practice. And he'd have different objections like that for whatever topic he's talking about, theological, philosophical. And oftentimes, when he gives these objections, he's going to cite like Bible verses or great church fathers or Aristotle or someone, you know. But then, then he says, uh, on the contrary, is a stock phrase. 
Then he cites usually a verse or something that, that gives his own opinion. Then he says, quote, I answer that. And he gives you his full take on this topic. Then the very last thing he has replies to the objections. Now he's going to go back and one by one tell you what was lacking from the objections. Like, for example, oh, no, memory's not a part of prudence because prudence is something of your intellect and memory is something sensory that animals have. And Thomas says, well, there is a sensory element to memory, but human beings have the capacity to bring in their intellect and reasoning powers to enhance and perfect their memory. So, yes, so memory is a part of prudence because it has both the sensitive and the intellectual aspect. You know, so for everything he does that. So, so if you're not used to it and you read something like Thomas' Summa Theologia, you're going to go, what is this? You know, mm -hmm. It's a very unusual way of, of writing. But, but, if, but And not all of his books are written that way. Some are more straightforward as okay. Summa Contra Gentiles. Other writings that like were based on sermons are, are, are more straightforward. But, but one point I should make, too, is that Thomas incorporates a lot of Stoic insights within that Summa Theologica, but primarily from Seneca, because Seneca wrote in Latin, and Thomas read Latin, Epictetus and Aurelius and Rufus and others, they're writing in Greek, and Thomas wasn't fluent, fluent in Greek, though he used translations for people like Aristotle, who wrote in Greek. But, but anyway, he, he brings in Seneca when he talks about things like the virtue of gratitude, uh, clemency, or how we make sure our punishments aren't uh, too harsh. He talks about uh, Seneca in the context of anger. He even kind of tries to reconcile Aristotle's take on anger with Seneca's talk on anger. And he even talks about it in, in as far out places that surprised me as much as even talking about the old Catholic theory of limbo. The idea like what happens to unbaptized babies. They never sin personally, but they haven't been baptized. What happens to them? And in one of Thomas's arguments, and again, this is just a theory. It's not defined uh, teaching. But he, he, he brings in Seneca. He said, well, he said... Uh, a wise person is never upset by what they cannot obtain. He said, like, most of us don't go around all sad because we're not a Roman emperor or because we can't fly like a bird. So Thomas says, well, it would be the same with these unbaptized souls. They would not be upset by the fact that they can't see God because they haven't received this grace, but they would enjoy every bit, all the natural uh, uh, gifts that they've been given, all the, the natural enduring life and so on. So anyway, Thomas knew Seneca so well, I mean, he, he draws from him in the most unlikely of places. And I will say, like, when Thomas talks about whole questions and articles on the virtue of gratitude, another thing that psychologists are latching on to today, along with forgiveness, we need to show gratitude. But when he writes about the virtue of gratitude and the vice of ingratitude, he borrows from Seneca more than he does from Scripture or St. Augustine or Aristotle. So Thomas really knew his Seneca. Wow, it's really interesting. And it, it's... um. It's nice to for any listeners out there to to give a Google on something Thomas Aquinas on the cardinal virtues, just to to see that because it's not you can get the gist of of, of the wisdom and his message in a short time. It it connects with me of of Epictetus uh, of the Enchiridion these these paragraphs. Yes. I mean they are short and to the point. It's not something that is going to take you hours to sift through to to find the lesson. So this memorize the Stoics. You're you're an expert in in memory. Could you walk us through how you might think about memory and use um, you know the memory palace, if I remember correctly, from last time we chatted. Using that, but maybe to, to give you a gist of what I do specifically in memorize the Stoics, I'll give you just two or three little little uh, examples. Because you mentioned Epictetus's handbook, which is wonderful. Fifty three little 
they call them ch uh, chapters, but they're just like, a, most of them are just from a line to a couple of paragraphs. It kind of summarizes his teaching, and they're like, boom, yeah, wow, this is deep stuff. If you're fascinated by it, then you go into his longer books, the Discourses, where you get to meet Epictetus himself and say, man, he's, he's a pretty fascinating character there. Uh, and he fleshes all this out. But anyway, I focus on the little handbook, the end Caridian, it's called, which means a manual or handbook. And it has these 53 chapters. So my goal, I'm going to show you in this book how we can memorize, not the exact, not all the words, it'd be thousands and thousands of words, but the, a key concept from each one of those chapters. So let me give you a very brief example. I'll just do three. Using this memory method. You imagine you're going to come to my house in the Midwest here. It's a sprawling ranch house. You ring the doorbell, the front door opens, and you see, oddly enough, a jet fighter's cockpit with two prominent control panels. So number one, front door opens, two control panels. Okay, number two, you decide you to step inside and there's a, a welcome mat there. But on that mat is this little man in a white suit. And he keeps pointing to this man next to him, has a crown on his head, and he says, Desire, Desire. Now, older people might recognize that as a call out to the old Fantasy Island TV show. There's a little man tattoo that, that always said, Deplane, Deplane, when he saw the plane landing on the island. But, but he's saying, Desire, the sire for the king, right? So that's number two. Number three, we're inside my foyer. There's a glass panel next to the front door. Now you're looking out in the front yard, and you notice there's a little, little boy out there. He's crying over a broken mug. And you think, oh, I hope nobody steps on those shards. But... But to do it one time backwards, the third location out in the window, the boy crying over the mug. The second location was that entrance mat, the little man saying, Desire. And the first at the front door, we just saw that, that control panel, two control panels. Okay, what's that all about? Well, when you open up that handbook, the first sentence is going to say, Some things are under our control and some things are not under our control. So there are two control panels. But I, in the book, I don't know if I said it just now, but I make it a jet fighter's cockpit too. It's also a nod to a modern stoic. A man named James Bond Stockdale, who was a jet fighter pilot, shot down over North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And, and he writes in his own book, he had really deeply studied in Epictetus. And he said, boys, he's come down, he said, I'm leaving the world of civilization, I'm entering the world of Epictetus. Meaning, he knew now so many things are no longer in his control. He can't control what he eats, where he lives, what he does with his body, maybe even not whether or not to prevent it. Uh, prevent torture, you know. He's going to have to focus more on his moods, his attitudes, his, his judgment. So anyway, that's our reminder for that the key concept in that first chapter. The second one where he's, that little man says, desire, this is what the Stoics call the discipline of desire. And in this chapter, Epictetus goes on on, when you're just starting, when you're just learning philosophy, because the chapters of his handbook kind of build, like you're very beginner at first, then he's guiding you deeper and deeper. But he said, at this point, be careful, kind of like, be careful what you wish for, because we haven't trained ourselves yet. We might desire things that you might later say, whoops, I, you know, be careful what you wish for. So just hold principles on how you can kind of rein in your desires as you're trying to live a more virtuous life. <laughs> then we move on to the third, that little boy out there with a broken mug, because in this third chapter, uh, Epictetus tells us to, whatever you value, whatever you find useful, ask yourself, what is the nature of that thing? And he even talks in one simple example about a little boy who, or about breaking a mug, right? You know, and I think, well, who among us has never broken a glass? I've talked to people, oh yeah, I do at least once or twice a year, you know, I have myself. But then he says, well, then, then what happens then if your wife or your child should die? Are you going to let that devastate you? So he's saying, remember the nature of things. Remember the nature of physical things, 
Remember the nature, which are fragile. Remember the nature of human beings who are uh, mortal. And in this one, I do give one real-life example, speaking as a father. You know, and I said, this, this goes back to the 1990s now. I say, you know, how proud he was. He yelled at, you know, mom and dad to come out to the driveway because he pulled his little red fire engine out from the back of the garage all by himself onto the driveway. The only thing is, mom had a brand new car and the little metal hooks on the side of that fire engine had dragged bumper to bumper, you know, big scratch across that car. So I say, the, you know, we knew the nature of cars and we knew the nature of little boys. So we didn't let it devastate us. I said, you know, so that, you know, that's the way things are. I said, but then we did call the insurance agent. So this doesn't mean that you take no action, you know, when you can, but it means you don't let things devastate you. But anyway, as we go through the book, we do this for all 53 chapters. So you, you learn at least one key concept in the exact order. So if you're ever sitting there in a doctor's office or dentist's office, you're bored out of your head, you're tired of looking at the TV or the magazines or your phone, you might want to ponder, think of some of Epictetus's lessons. So that's the, the general gist out for, for part one on Epictetus. We try to memorize at least one key idea from all 53 of his little chapters. I love it. And could you speak to what we're actually capable of in, in terms of memory? I, I remember reading a while back about people that actually do these memory competitions using you know, these similar tools. What are we really capable of for somebody that is, is new to, to, to this? Well, you know, they say for most people, your natural short-term memory span is about seven pieces of information. They say seven plus or minus two to factor in people's stronger or weaker memories. Between about five and nine catches most people. And that's part of the reason, based on psychological research, that our phone numbers have seven digits because most people can, can hold them, especially if it's broken apart in a three uh, and a four. But when it comes to terms of your, your long-term memory, what if you really pay attention and focus, and especially if you use these methods, it's almost limitless. You know, we have billions and billions of brain cells all interconnected. Uh, so our storage potential is really, really vast if we strive to make the most of it. So that's what these methods uh, try to do. Uh, the, the oldest book that we have on it is from, from Rome in the first century BC. And they basically say these techniques will make a, a good memory better and a bad memory not so bad. <laughs> and talking about those memory competitions, you know, some people are known to have near flashbulb memories, very powerful natural memories. They automatically just things really soak in well. And they've even done some competitions where they put, pit those people against these experts who studied these methods for years. And the people who studied the methods for years, they typically win. You know, so I guess the ideal would be the person with the super powerful memory, if they'd be willing to learn the techniques too, then watch out. You know. But, but yeah, I would say, though, but for even most of us, we, we, we might be surprised uh, at how we can improve our, our memories. So I like to say, too, memory, again, like, like the idea from Thomas Aquinas, it's not just something of the sensitive soul like an animal. It's not just something, a piece of your brain that you happen to have. Our human rational thinking abilities can help us come up with methods that extend our memory powers, that, that make it easier, easier for us to remember things and then also to recall them later on. Would you say that it's highly likely that you know the average person can read the book put a little bit of time and they'll know all 53 by memory well it's a good question because my previous books uh, memorize of faith and some others where i used different material people tons of people said yes i did you know they, they, actually that first memory book still my bestseller it because uh, it, it works so well for most people some people may have an unusually weak visual memory 
capacity. And this may or may not work as, as well for them. But for the most people, yeah. And I will just say, uh, one guy who I uh, did a podcast with a few weeks ago, uh, he was really, really into the Stoics, especially the area. So he tried it. And he told me that he said, I didn't work real hard, but in one week's time, he said he did. He knew, he memorized all 53 of the handbook chapters. Uh, and if you do this, by the ordering system, you'll also know them forward and backwards because you know which one is actually which number because you tie each one into a specific location as we go around a house and we even go over around an image of a stoic porch. The book is illustrated. But then, but then after that, I go into the first 50 letters from Seneca. So now you're going to use the same memory location system but for brand new material. Now that's going to get a little bit tougher. You know, you might get interference going because now you put all this Epictetus stuff in there and now you're going to put all this Seneca stuff in there. Can you keep them both in there at the same time? <laughs> time will tell. You know, I don't, I, the book's not been out long enough for me to get many reviews. I can do it myself, but I mean, if I, if I rehearse it once in a while, if I practice it myself. And then in the third part of the book, we do, I give people a little bit of rest. I just call seven golden maxims from Marcus Aurelius. We only remember seven things from him on a different memory system. And then the, the, the final chapters have a few little touch-up things like, what if you do want to remember exact quotes? There's some tips on how to help you do that. Or what if you want to remember what some of these uh, Greek or Latin terms that the Stoics use mean in English? There's a special memory method for that. So. That's awesome. And it seems to be so important if we think of, as the Stoics talk about philosophy as action, something we really rubber meets the road, you've, you've got to know these lessons you know, quickly. They've got to be committed to, to memory. But as you, an interesting thing, as you were talking about these visuals, it reminds me of all throughout uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations. I mean, there's just visual after visual from, from nature when he's talking about change from, from fire to water and, you know, everything is a, is a visual, it seems like, for him. Oh, oh, absolutely. He is doing that constantly. And Epictetus, if you read his full discourses, he's constantly talking about different animals, wolves and lions and lambs and so on. So, yeah, they're, they're tying in these abstract concepts to, to the concrete things, the real things around us. And it's a really a, a great thing that the Stoics do that. I mean, they're such great teachers. They're not just going to throw all, all these abstractions at us. They're going to make it real. They're going to talk about things that we encounter every day in the world around us and in interaction with, uh, with other people as well. Well, this has been great. Our time has flown by, Kevin. I've got just one... A uh, quick wrap-up question that we've been asking most guests, and that is simply around wisdom, how you define or think about wisdom in daily life. Yeah, and in daily life, so that, that practical wisdom or prudence. Oh, okay. Without making this too long and drawn out, I, I kind of try to sum up some of my key ideas there. I'd say that the practical wisdom in daily life is where you're going to try to make sure you're trying to seek what, what's true about things. So you can do things that are truly good. And this prudence or practice wisdom aspect is so you can achieve virtuous, noble goals using virtuous and noble means as well. So you won't do bad things to achieve good things later on with the ultimate goal of kind of fulfilling your own self, fulfilling your own abilities and talents, creating your greatest chances of happiness, but then also creating the kind of self that's going to be most beneficial to others. Mm -hmm of most service to other people and better capable of helping them maximize their own potential. Well, I love it. This has been great. I really am appreciative of your time for the listeners. Uh, the books we've been talking about are the porch and the cross and memorize the Stoics. But, uh, Kevin has written many others on, on various topics. 
But where do you point people interested in and in learning more about you and, and some of your other books? Well, I do have a website. It's drvost.com, just D-R-V-O-S-T.com. I will say it's not up to date with, with my most recent books, but there's a comment box on the bottom. So if people would like to give me a comment or ask me a question, they can certainly do that. As far as finding all of my titles, you can go to some of the world's most famous uh, and prosperous internet bookseller sites, and you can find them all listed there. All right. Awesome. And we'll link everything in the show notes we discussed today. Dr. Kevin Vos, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Josh. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.